Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hi, it is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams to you. I'm in the New York Post Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I certainly hope you are going to be reading me. And even if you don't, I hope now you're going to be listening to me. you got to be doing something. If you're not reading me, you got to be listening to me. Right now I'm going to think back because I feel like it. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day was my anniversary. So already we've already established Valentine's Day, but now that it's over, I want to go to the presents. David Beckham once gave Victoria an $8 million Bulgari ruby and diamond necklace. Well, it was nice. Justin Bieber bought Selena Gomez, he did not marry, the contents of an entire florist's shop for $10,000. Had to be a small shop. Courtney Cox gifted, now ex, David Arquette, an antique carousel horse, reportedly worth 45 Gs. In 2021, Machine Gun Kelly to fiancé Megan Fox, a necklace containing a drop of her blood in a glass vial. Uh, 2009, Jay-Z, figuring blouses, handed her a $25,000 platinum phone. Julia Roberts has said she once felt incredible loneliness. That's a direct quote. The incredible loneliness was before she married, and she said, unless you actually have someone that belongs to you, it's pointless. It's vapor. Tom Hanks' favorite romantic couple it was Star Wars, R2-D2, and C-3PO. Yeah, why? He said they're adorable. And his idea of heartwarming togetherness, not leaving socks on the bedroom floor. Ugh, what a guy to be married to. <laughs> Candace Bushnell. She says, I dislike Valentine's Day. It's a single girl's nightmare. A woman should not feel prey to notions that make you feel bad. Should be badly, I think. Bad, she said. John Waters. Nobody can ever get a date in New York. Everyone in New York is so hung up on power games. They think that accepting a romantic invitation means surrendering status. All anyone cares about in NYC is not relinquishing power and hierarchy. No one kisses anyone here. So, how did all these lovers all connect? Well, David Bowie met first wife. David Bowie, I'm mispronouncing. I think my teeth are loose. David Bowie met first wife Angie when they dated the same man. And his proposal included these words. Quote, can you handle 
that I don't love you, end quote. How about that for a proposal? Mel Gibson and Robin, they went through a dating agency. Pete Sambras's Mrs. Bridget, quote, We found one another in the movie where I played a crazy psycho. Okay, going on. Sir Michael Caine. He discovered Shakira doing a Maxwell House commercial. Sonny and Cher, blind date. Jane Seymour, quote, James Keach's proposal was a drag. I was doing a scene wearing men's clothes, and I had stubble on my chin. Very romantic. Harrison Ford, about his first wife, Melissa Matheson, he's had a few wives, he said, quote, It was part of the relationship continuum. I actually don't know if I even ever bothered to ask her to marry me. It just went on. Robert Redford proposed on a New York City payphone. Fortunately, besides millions, he also had a few coins. <laughs> if you should care about former President Gerald Ford, I don't know that the world is beating the toms to hear, but it happens I know. Ed Lucaire, who wrote a book called Celebrity Setbacks, reports that Gerald Ford wore one black shoe and one brown to his wedding because of nervousness. Kevin Costner was so broke, he borrowed $150 for a honeymoon weekend in Mexico. Then he and bride Cindy ducked out on the hotel bill. Bill Gates, marrying Melinda in 94, he reserved every car, campsite, and hotel room on the island of Lanai, so nobody could crash. The divorce, however, he did alone. That's because he did other things, not alone. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kira Sedgwick, when she wed Kevin Bacon, my mother was late. I was mad. I'm still mad about it. Mary Steenburgen to dead Ted Danson. Her mom's gift was the steel lantern Mary's freight train conductor father used. Improvising Russell Simmons took Kimora Lee for, this is the identical quote, for richer or richer. Kelly Preston, John Travolta planned it so expensive that ex assistance had assistance so we could finally elope. Wait, I have some more things I'm going to tell you. I have some more things. Wait, don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. I would like to tell you that I, I know God made the universe. And then he rested, and then he made man, and then he rested, and then he made politicians, 
and then nobody's rested ever since. I just thought I would mention that because it is thought only in New York, kids, only in New York. We got us. Here's a story that just this week I was on the opening front page because of the story I'm about to tell you that starts in New York, New York. New York, we got the Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building, World Trade Center, St. Pat's, Saks Windows, Met Museum, Hudson River, Diamond Center, Bronx Zoo, Chinatown, Fifth Avenue, Rock Center, Uptown, Downtown, Crosstown, Best Bagels, Best Cheesecake, Best Steaks, Best New York Post Newspaper, and Best of Our Best, Central Park. In it, the most magical place anywhere was Central Park's Loeb Boathouse. Rumors were, for years, since the pandemic, the place changed hands. No rumor. Here's the story I had this week. Born in the 50s, directly on the water, this boathouse began serving your shrimp cocktail, or martini cocktail, right inside the middle of this number one busiest city in the world. It was dine or wine, right on the water's edge, birds, trees, ripples, rowboats, moving in front of you. 1989, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal's Harry Met Sally filmed there. 1962, Sinatra and Angela Lansbury filmed The Manchurian there. People date there, marry there, get engaged there. It stopped operating in 2022. Here's the story. After a competitive bid process, the Parks Department has just now announced Legends Hospitality is the new operator of the boathouse. Now, let me tell you about Legends. Legends is a combination of this world's most important sports and entertainment venues. Legends has its own legend. It's a togetherness of top sport, stadium, and entertainment investments. We are talking New York Yankees, Dallas Cowboys, NFL, and how about a mixed cocktail of such other wonders as the Circle Line, the Intrepid? Instrumental in rejoicing, reducing the boathouse was Mayor Eric Adams and our Parks Commissioner. Things started when the Hotel Workers Union president spoke to Yankees President Randy Levine about rescuing the boathouse. And it is the legends who saved this legend. Mayor Adams did a press conference about it yesterday, days after I, thank you, broke the story. Whispers are that legends will now invest legendary capital. They will juice up the boathouse. They will restore this treasure to its historic glory. They will save it's approximately 100 union jobs. So, Legends is great. Me, I had my birthday party at the top of their world observatory. And hey, those hot dogs 
at Yankee Stadium. They are great. Okay? So, now, we're going to go on. I'm going to tell you about, I'm a little aggravated about awards. We have the Oscars, the Tonys, the Sags, the Grammys, the Emmys. You ready? Golden Globes, Golden Peacocks, Silver Peacocks, BAFTAs, OBs, DJAs, Palm d'Or, Palm d'Or, however you pronounce it, Critics' Choices, Olympics, CODAs, Gotham's, People's Choice Awards, Junos, Peabody's, Nobel's, Best Dressed, Indie Spirits, uh, whatever Cannes thing is, the MTV Video Awards, Film Independent Something Somethings, National Board of Review, and India Spirits, whatever the hell all of that is. So I'm asking you, what's next? Cheapest plumber? Shortest exterminator? I need to know. Dumbest president? Well, listen, that I think we already got. Nothing beats the pizzazz of the Grammys. Listen, it was sequins glued onto the actual crotch. It was boobs boobing up for their close-up. There was underarm braids. There were behinds getting hand appliqued seed pearls. There were pants so tight you can tell if the guy just did it or he's vamping until he does. We had star names. Forget nice little names like Frank, Barry, Mel. No, not today. Don't even think something that sounds like Kate Smith. We are talking Adam and the Ants, Alice in Chains, Five Finger Death Pouch, English Rock Group Arctic Monkeys. That's what I think we have had now enough of. And you've probably had enough of me. I mean, temporarily, at the moment. I'm about to have my teeth fixed and have the microphone fixed so it doesn't fall on my mouth anymore. And right now we are going to have a station break, and then I'm going to come back and be extremely brilliant and talented. So stick around. I'll be back in two seconds. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I am now about to speak to my newly best friend. Her name is Rochelle Boone. She is an on-air anchor at New York One, and she has a very serious, tough story to tell us, and I love her. Listen. And are you there, Rochelle? I am here. Thank you so much for that great introduction. Now tell us, let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? What's your home? Where did you start? I actually started, uh, I'm from the island of Jamaica, believe it or not. I was not born in the U.S., but I came here as a little girl um, at 11 years old. I moved to the Bronx with my family, my mother and my stepfather, and I've been living in New York for a long, long, long time. Okay, when you came here, what did the family do? What did you do? Well, when we first got here, 
my mom was a nurse's aide and my dad was a truck driver. It's that, you know, typical immigrant story where, you know, you want a better life for your family. And, uh, you know, where we were living in Kingston, Jamaica, it wasn't completely horrible, but it wasn't the best opportunities there. And so my mom wanted to make sure that my brother and I at the time uh, had a great opportunity. So we came here. And when we came here, you know, I went to school here, but I also worked, you know, back then. And I'm sure a lot of immigrant families still do it. Everybody has to do it. You know, we all chipped in. And so, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff. I worked at the local supermarket. I had a bike route, a uh, paper route, uh, riding my bicycle, delivering paper. And uh, it was great. You know, I learned a lot about how I could contribute financially to the family. Okay, where did you live? Oh, I lived in quite a few places. So I lived uh, in Wakefield in the Bronx. That was the first place I moved to. And I got to tell you, there are times when I'll drive by that house, and sometimes I just go there to look at where I started. And it's uh, it's right across from Montefiore Wakefield at 233rd Street and Carpenter Avenue. And I, I love that I got my start there. And then we uh, moved over to Radcliffe and Burke Avenue. And then we moved to the valley across from Co-op City. And that's actually where I had my paper route. And that, believe it or not, is actually where I made the most money. I don't want to say which paper I was working for, but I did pretty well. And so... I just, you know, made a lot of money to help myself pay for prom, to pay for graduation stuff. And so, you know, it it took a lot of pressure off the family. And then I went on to Baruch College to study accounting. And then, you know, of course, I'm a journalist now. I didn't actually use that accounting degree, but it was a great experience. It really was. Okay, don't not being paid by the newspaper, because if they hear you made more money than I do, it's going to be a problem here. Okay, so then you got married. Tell us about him. Oh, my husband. Oh, he's such a sweetheart. He's probably one of the kindest, nicest person I have ever met in my life. And we met here at New York One. Um, He was doing audio at the time. And um, I saw him in the control room and I thought, this guy's such a nice guy. And I'll tell you a quick story. You know, you don't always want to try and date somebody at work. You know, that's often a no-no. So I wanted to get to know him. So I threw this party at my apartment in Astoria, Queens. And he was the only one who wasn't in on it. I invited all my friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I said, we have to vet this guy because I really like this guy. And everybody's like, why are you so head over heels? I said, I don't know. There's something about him that's great. And I, I was right. He is a great, great man. And so we started dating. The rest is history, really. We um, moved in together six months later, got engaged six months after that got married the following year, and now we've been married almost 20 years, and we have two boys, a 9- and an 11-year-old. Okay, okay, okay. Let's get off how wonderful your husband is, and let's get to important (laughs) things. How did you get your behind over to Channel One? Oh, that's a good question. So, you know, I, um, I was in accounting, right, at Baruch College, and in my senior year of college, I realized I really didn't want to be an accountant. And that is actually a really late time to discover that. But, um, you know, I had taken an internship at the Department of Justice, and I actually was uh, on my way 
to having a job out of school. But I, I, I also realized that I, I'm a lot of fun. I wanted to have a good old time. I didn't want to just audit, you know, bad guys. So um, I decided that I was going to try and get my own internship. I don't know if you could do that these days, but I literally called around to all the stations that I could look up. And finally, um, CNBC said, yeah, why don't you come in for an interview? And so I went in for the interview. I got the internship. And a couple months in, they were like, ah, uh, we need some paperwork from your school on this. And I went, oh, uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> and so so uh, a professor helped me out with that. And I just worked my butt off. That last, uh, you know, six months of college, I just worked really hard. And they hired me out of school. And from there, I worked behind the scenes at CNN. And then from there, I sent a tape back then when they still used tape. Okay, 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 okay. I want everyone to know that the reason for this whole story is because it goes into a very long story. Now you have to tell me, you got onto Channel One as a reporter, as a street yeah. reporter, and then they put you on to be an actual on-air reporter. Now uh -huh. tell me, what happened and when? So back uh, in 2002, uh, you know, we're now Spectrum News, New York One. But back then, they were looking for a Queens reporter, and I lived in Queens at the time. So that was a big leg up for me. And I knew Queens very, very, very well. Even though I grew up in the Bronx, I moved to Queens when I was at Baruch College. So, um, and then I was always a hustler, always a hustler. You ask me to do something, I'm going to tell you I can do it. And so, and if I don't know how to do it, I'll figure it out and make sure I get it done right. So they um, liked that in me. And the news director at the time, Peter Landis, said, you know what? I think I'm going to give you a shot. And I was just, oh, I, back then we had voicemail. Okay, okay, I know all that. I want to know what happened to you. We all began to love you on the air. But yeah. what happened that all of a sudden you were no longer on the air, which is the point of this interview. That is true. And I'm so glad you're doing this because last... Go ahead. Tell us the story. Yeah. Last June, on June 14th, I discovered that I had pancreatic cancer. And it was just the most devastating news that I have ever gotten in my life. That aside from the death of my mother, which occurred just a few months before that. She died from COVID. So... It was just, it was unbelievable, Cindy. I, I can't tell you how difficult it is to hear a doctor say to you, you have cancer. And you'll hear people talk about how devastating it is, but until you live it, it's like, you know, I went to the emergency room because I was feeling what I thought was stomach pains, but it was really deep inside my body in my abdomen, and it would come and it would go, and I would take, uh, you know, antacids, and I would feel better, and I had a back pain and a lot of fatigue, and I just kept saying something isn't right, and I kept going to my doctor, and I said, you know, I don't know what, what it is, but I just feel off. My body is off, and something isn't right, and he said, you know, you know, maybe try changing your diet and doing some exercise, and I was like, well, geez, I could have come up with that on my own, and I just wouldn't let it go, and so... On June 14th, at 2 o'clock in the morning, I said to my husband, please don't go to work today. I said, I need you to take me to the emergency room. 
And he did. And they did a CAT scan. And then the doctor came back and said, uh, Mrs. Boone, you cannot leave the hospital. And I said, why not? And he sat down, he held my hand, and he says, you have a huge tumor on your pancreas. And I said, as in pancreatic cancer, I'm going to die? And the floodgates opened, Cindy. I just started to cry. And in that moment, I thought I was going to die. But here I am. Okay, and then they put you in an ambulance, didn't they? Yeah, so at that first hospital, um, it became clear that to me that they were not equipped to handle something like this. The emergency room was great, but once I got admitted, you know, they said I needed to have surgery right away. They were going to transfer me to another hospital that didn't specialize in cancer or this type of cancer. So I said, you know, I need to get to Sloan Kettering. And so eventually I did get to Sloan and I was transferred there in an ambulance. Yeah. What do you do, tell me, for people who are listening, what do you do? How do you combat that kind of terror? Do you scream? Do you pray? What do you do? I tell you, I do all of the above. In the beginning, there was a lot of screaming and there were a lot of tears, a lot of tears, because at the time, my sons were only 10 and 8, and I kept thinking, Oh, gosh, they're going to have to tell people when they grow up. I lost my mom at an early age. She died of cancer. I started planning my funeral in my head. And then, you know, about a month later in July, when I got to chemo, there was something in me that felt so defiant. And I'm a woman of faith, and I prayed a lot. And right before chemo, I I heard a voice that just said, let go and let God, and that was all I needed. And I went in there like, I don't care what the statistics say. I don't care what anybody says. I am going to beat this. I am going Do you to really believe that you actually heard a voice? I know about that, but I didn't hear anyone of our ilk say that they actually heard a voice. Yeah, I did. You know, I really did. I sat there quietly by myself. And I heard it. And in that moment, I felt peace, to be honest. And I still carry that peace with me. And I'm glad I did because my whole attitude changed. And it went from, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die to, no, I'm not going to die. And no, I'm not going to be depressed about this. And no, I'm not going to walk around moping. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to live. And every day that I wake up is going to be a win. And so I carried that attitude. So when I went to chemo, I wore like shocking pink pants. I wore red outfits. I wore, you know, black and white prints. You know, I wasn't going to go in there just moping and thinking I'm not going to make it. And you know what? If I didn't make it, that would have been okay, too, because I would have given it all my all. But my plan was to make it. What about the coworkers? You were off. How did your bosses feel? How did your, your reporter friends feel at New York One? Oh, you know, there was a lot of heartbreak for me, and I could see it, and I could feel it, and they all rallied around me. And when my energy changed, their energy changed as well. And my bosses here have been incredible, incredible. Mike Baer, who's the head of the news division, came and sat with me for chemo. You know, Allison Hellman, I mean, they were great. You know, my, the anchors here have been great. The reporters have been great. 
And so, and they've given up their time to either talk to me or visit me or cook for me or clean for me. It's incredible. I, I just, I, I can't tell you how much I love them for that. What is the situation now? Can you eat, drink, what, what? Um, eating is quite tough. That is the honest truth because I had what you call the Whipple surgery, and it is a massive surgery that rearranges a lot of organs and messes with your digestive system. But um, I can eat. As a matter of fact, the last time I saw you, I ate a great tuna fish sandwich. I haven't had tuna fish in a while, so now I'm, I'm hooked again. Um, but you didn't and- eat the whole sandwich. No, I did not. I can only eat um, uh, as much as the size of the palm of my hand. And I have to eat about six times per day as, a mo- as opposed to eating three large meals. Um, and so it's okay. And, and what it's, about it's, drinking? Okay. Well, yeah, now yeah. I like a little sip every now and then. And the oh, yes, mostly okay. now. Okay, so, but you're not <laughs> supposed to drink when you're taking medication. No, no. And when I'm taking medication, I don't. But my doctor has cleared it. And I was kidding before. You know, I may have a glass of wine. Like when I saw you last time, it was a special occasion. I was sitting with the legend. I had to have a little bit of wine. But um, I haven't had anything to drink since then. So my doctors are very clear on that. Like, I, you know, they know when I can drink and how often I can. And I do follow all the rules on that. Now, how much weight? did you lose? Because when you were originally on television, you had a lot of nice little chunkies. What about (laughs) (laughs) you had them in every place we're supposed to have them, and you had a little extra that we don't need. So what what do you do now about clothes? Did you lose weight? Of course you lost weight. Uh, Yeah, I lost a ton of weight. And you know, I love myself regardless, whether I'm heavy, whether I'm, you know, I lose a little bit or a lot. Um, but I've lost a lot. I've lost about 50 pounds, and that's common um, for a lot of people with cancer. And because I'm not eating in the same way that I did before, it's just very different. And it's, the journey has been tough between chemo and surgery. So now I am very much enjoying buying a new wardrobe. I am very much enjoying, um, you know, looking at new cute outfits and uh, the stuff that I like. I just, you know, grab it off the rack and go. So, you know, that's one of the, the beauties of this is that, you know, every, everything has a silver lining. What right? about the and children? What about your husband and the children? How did you handle the kids? You know, I was very honest with them. Very, very honest from the beginning. And everything that happened, everything the doctor shared, I shared with them. And so I wanted to do that on purpose so they wouldn't feel a need to... Uh, Google anything or feel like we weren't being truthful with them, and that served us well. So when we told them what was happening, of course, they were fearful in the beginning, but as we got better and better news, as you know, we went along, they understood that it wasn't a lie, and I was getting better. And to be honest, I'll tell you this, Cindy, I spoke to my oncologist two days ago. I did a screening, and um, there, are, there are no signs of reoccurrence. They cut out the cancer in October, and I did a scan in December and another one in February, and so far, so good, and I am over the moon. because As, as, as before, we would say, mazel tov. Now tell me, when... Yeah. Does your 50-pound less behind go into New York One on television again? I knew you were going to get back to that. My well, goal, yeah. 
<laughs> my goal is to get back in March. And, um, you know, and I'm working on that. I still have one more round of chemo to go. So it will depend on how I respond to that. But my goal is to get back in March, to get back on TV and just be amazing because I feel amazing. I think you're terrific, but you're now going to have to have a new wardrobe because your tops and your bottoms actually stuck out beautifully in those clothes you had before, honey. Yes, you you talk to listen, I've always been a little busty. I've been that way since I was a kid. And so I'm not as busty as I, I was before. What but, about your behind? Is that out there too? Nah, I lost some of that too, but that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> I'm grateful to speak to you. I can't wait until you're back and I think you should bless the people you work for that they understood that you're as terrific as you are. Oh, thank you very much. I feel very fortunate to have the station and the people I work with behind me. They've been terrific, just terrific. Mazel tov and keep in touch, sweetie. All right, will do. Thank you, Cindy. Okay, Rochelle, bye. Bye. A name you may not remember from the old days, Saul Wachtler. In the old days, he had his own problems, but he was, at one point, the former New York State of Appeals chief judge. Actually, he was on his way almost to being governor before he had his own personal difficulties. He is now the Turo Law School adjunct professor. And now he is telling us from his knowledge and wisdom about Governor Hochul's lost nominee for chief judge. He told me, quote, the Court of Appeals has little concern if a candidate is conservative or progressive. In 1974, 128 years after creating the court, Harold Stevens, the first African-American from a dirt floor Jim Crow poor shack, he was seated. Appraising Hector LaSalle, just on his record, destroys the non-political court of appeals. It destroys the merit selection process. In Wisconsin, this is the judge still speaking, in Wisconsin, judicial candidates campaign on abortion, redistricting, same-sex marriage, Affordable Care Act, and the final word no longer by executive and legislative branches, has become now a law by Wisconsin Supreme Court's seven members, says the judge. Legislation predicted on populist notions, selecting a next chief judge based on bumper sticker mentality, Ideology invites judicial abuse and tyranny. Also, he says, cannibals have an advantage over politicians in that cannibals do not eat members of their own family. So that was from a former chief judge. I'm sort of in the mood to think 
kind of important things. So I would like to give a quote from Spike Lee, whom I know quite well. Spike Lee said, this is his direct quote, Why do all black people sing and dance in movies and shows? The subtext is, Lord, we are so happy to have a job. Yeah, well, no longer is that any excuse to degrade themselves on TV. He says, my people have to wake up. It's time. In the old days, our people had no choice. Nowadays, we do not have to do that stuff. Okay, I'm going on. I would now like to give you something else. I'm just in the mood to do a lot of stuff. It's like a, a crossword puzzle here. Besides fashion shows, we just had dog shows. May newcomer owners learn, ladies have to think now like husbands. You have to give him toilet training. That's a husband, also a dog. You have to let him out once in a while. That is a dog, but definitely also a husband. And you have to keep them both on a long leash. Besides, really, what more would anyone want in a warm bed? My Yorkie already has a trainer, a groomer, a walker, a routine, a license, a vet, a collar, a leash, a diet, a cashmere sweater, a rabies shot, his own shampoo, and this little thing wandering around my house is just one foot long. And now I think I want to quote a presidential aide who said, I can't see or hear well. The New York City doctor said, I told you to stop drinking. A month later, the doctor repeats, I told you to stop drinking. The aide said, yeah, but from what I'm seeing and hearing in the White House lately, I decided to keep it up. Hey, that is only in New York, kids, only in New York. So I was peeing on the Oscars. I'm not finished. My thoughts are going further. It seems to me the Oscars have gone the way of Brazier's. Not everyone's into them anymore. Tom Cruise, again, is leaping and smashing and banging, and not a hair, even in his nose, moves. It's enough already with him. Theaters are empty. Projectionists don't even show up. That's how empty it is. In some places, the popcorn last popped when Casablanca opened with Humphrey Bogart, and he's been gone 500 years. Glass Onion is in the city's greatest, most perfect theater. That's the Paris. It's on 58th or 5th. I went there. It had 10 patrons in the entire theater. Russell Crowe's statuette might not increase the size of roles offered 
but it will increase the size of eggs laid. Why? Because he keeps the thing in his chicken barn. That's how excited he is with his Oscar. Our population today? Migrants. You think they're eager to see films on A1? Artificial intelligence? They can't find food or places to sleep or got places to bathe or go to the john. They want to see things on robots? Why? Why? Our population wants to see real stuff. They want to see real people. They don't want to see every reel where someone is getting stabbed, killed, dismembered. Whatever happened to June, Moon, Spoon, and customers who came to the theater? Am I the only one who's bitching? Hollywood, it's where actresses of age 22 are considered senior citizens. Where there's such jealousy that they stab you in the front. Where vasectomies are sold door to door. And this is what decides what ordinary, everyday, nine-to-five souls want to see. The movie colony knows love between two people is life's wonderful experience, no matter who the right two people are. And these are the brains making films for everyday folk who plant seeds, own oxen, and raise kids? How about what's being lauded? How about all quiet on the Western Front? That's not exactly a recent movie. That's war. That's brutal. That's the ban... And how about the banshees of Inchirin, or whatever it is. Inchirin, it's an Irish movie about someone cutting off a finger. Triangle of Sadness is storm, sinking ship, people whoopsing, Avatar, Top Gun, and the Sea Beast, terrifying creatures, plus monster hunters. This is what we all want people to see. I am getting upset with what this is. I don't think that this is right. I think it's just as bad as people in New England. <laughs> the microphone it's just I'm here fell now. on me. Uh, <laughs> Kevin, remind me to replace the uh, mic stand for uh, the Comrex we have here. <laughs> Listen, if everyone is <laughs> if everyone is listening to me, or if you're not listening, or if you turned me off because you're tired of me, I do not blame you. I am sitting here at this high class, wonderful station that I love. W. What is it? ABC. Thank you. W-A-B-C, which is what on the dial? 770 on your dial. Which is 770 on your dial on what? AM, FM, or what? AM, yes. On AM. And I am getting paid. Not great, but I am getting paid. And it is owned by my friend John Katsimatidis. And I am here doing this wonderful, brilliant broadcast for all of you. And I am sitting with some dumbass producer who gave me a microphone that fell on me twice. And I don't want this cut off. I want this on the air. They should know what I am going through. 
for my pitiful few dollars a week. Are you still there? Are you still <laughs> listening to me? I love you all. I'm getting off. I've had enough of this. I am going home. Leave me alone and tune me in next week where things will get better and the bump on my head may be gone. This was a wounded Cindy Adams for W. What? ABC. ABC. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.